Thanks for joining us today. We'd love to hear how God is using this ministry in your life. So we encourage you to share your story with us at info at fellowshipgj.com or by clicking the Share Your Story tab on the Church Center app. Also, if God is using this ministry to impact you, we want to encourage you to partner with us financially. And you can do that by clicking on the giving link located in the description below this video, online at fellowshipgj.com, or if you're a member here at Fellowship Church, you can give through our Church Center app. This will help us continue to bring the message of Christ to our community and beyond. Again, thank you for joining us today and enjoy today's service. way that men and women are extremely different is in the way that we text. So I want you to imagine that I am sending a text to my husband, and my text includes the strategic plan of how we as a family are going to juggle little league, soccer, piano lessons, his work schedule, my work schedule, 4640, and the kids' homeworks. And so it's an elaborate detail, and I might include in there uh, my emotions about the strategic plan. I might update what I did for lunch, the stresses of my workday. It might include a play-by-play -play of a phone call I took from the boys' school and what they had to say about an incident that may or may not have occurred. And then I hit send. Now, to read my text, you have to scroll up. It doesn't fit just on one phone screen. You have to, like, scroll up to get the whole premise, and invariably, my husband's response will be K. Not, not okay, not two letters, just K. And as a woman, I'm left wondering, did, did you read this text? But this is not just a problem that I have in my marriage, this is actually a universal problem within humanity in the way that men and women communicate with one another. So recently, this, this came up at work. Amanda and I will send texts to Pastor Tim about work stuff from time to time. Again, it will be elaborate and detailed about a problem and how we're going to solve it. And Pastor Tim will respond with, sure. And this, this became stressful for me and Amanda. And so we went to Tim and we said, hey, T Pastor Tim, when we send you an elaborate work problem and we tell you how we're going to solve it and if you just want to write sure that's okay because you're our boss but could you just add an emoji like like sure with a smiley face so we know sure but you're okay with it or sure with an angry face so we know like oh man this this is not a good plan we shouldn't we shouldn't go with this plan and so we asked him for that and he rolled his eyes at us but he agreed he agreed with the plan and so a couple weeks later Amanda had occasion to text Pastor Tim and this is a screenshot of our exact text thread off of our cell phones. So what you'll see is Pastor Amanda, she goes, hey guys, both kids are sick, and Jonathan, her husband, can't get out of work till 9 a.m. He works the night shift, so I'll be late. Sorry, Tim, no problem. Handphone dancing guy rainbow ice skates. And I, Amanda's like, this is getting a little weird. And I say, I'm so glad that Tim has communicated his emotions with this response. Sorry your kids are sick, see you soon. Like, like a grown up, right? And then Amanda laughs, then Tim sends a gymnastics girl? I, I don't know. And there's laughter and we go on with our work day. And so 
I just think for the benefit of our work relationships, for the benefit of our marriages, for just the way the genders communicate, it would be good if we got on the same page about emojis. So emojis are obviously those little pictures that you can add to a text to bring emotion, right? And emojis strung together actually tell a story. So I want to throw out a little challenge to you, and we're going to put up a series of emojis, and I want you to look at these series of emojis and see what Bible story do you think is being referred to with these emojis. If you know what it is, you can shout it out when you see it. Okay, so here we go. Adam and Eve, right? See how this works? It tells a story. It brings emotion. It brings something to life. Okay, let's take a look at the next one. Noah's Ark. Yes, absolutely. Okay, the next one. This one's a little harder, I think. Daniel and the Lion's Den. Exactly. You guys are great at this. Okay, let's take a look. Samson. Yeah, strong arm, dancing girl, haircut. Remember the haircut? I temple. Okay, next one. This is the last one. Tell me if you can figure this one out. Okay, angry fisherman, ear, sword, three times, and a rooster. Get it? Peter, right? Peter. And so Peter is actually the topic of our text this morning. We're going to be in a series, continuing in the series, Managing Emotions. And as we're looking at Peter, well, there are tons of opportunities to manage our emotions. Peter struggled with this throughout his life. And so it's easy. And one of the things that Peter is best known for is his failure. He publicly failed. And that's one of the things that everyone knows about him. When, he, when Jesus was being arrested and Peter was in the courtyard and Peter denied even knowing Jesus and then the rooster crowed and Peter's failure was epic and it was public. And when we look at that story, we have to recognize that that's not where Peter's story ended. That was in the middle of his story where that happened. But Peter got up from that failure and he went on to be an incredible leader in the church. When Jesus ascended into heaven, and Peter gathered together this ragtag group of disciples who was rattled, and he, and he led them forward. Peter is the one who preached the very first recorded sermon after Jesus' ascension on the day of Pentecost, and 3,000 people were saved and baptized into the faith. Peter authored two books of the New Testament, and Peter went on to just be an incredible leader, so his story didn't end with a failure. At the very end of his life, Peter had an opportunity to deny Christ or to be martyred himself, and Peter chose martyrdom. So whatever fear or insecurity had rattled Peter younger in his life, he overcame it as time went on. He grew through this failure. So I want to jump into the text in Mark chapter 14, and the reason I choose this gospel is that many Bible scholars believe that Peter actually dictated this book of the Bible to John Mark, who actually penned these words. And so this is Peter's story about Peter in Peter's own words. Mark 14, verse 27, Jesus told them, all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. There is so much going on in just these first couple verses. First of all, Jesus just informed his closest friends that he is going to die, and they missed that. 
And then he said, not only is he going to die, but he's going to be raised from the dead. And they missed that as well. And I think the reason that got overshadowed is that Peter just rushes in and sort of steals the moment and makes it all about himself. It's like, I want you to hear this text and picture, do you remember Gaston from Beauty and the Beast? Like the meathead guy, the big barrel chest, strutting around. Thinking, that's kind of how I picture Peter when he delivers this thing. And I picture the other disciples, like what would be helpful is an emoji with the text so that we could see that the other disciples are probably rolling their eyes at Peter as he makes this moment all about himself. So let's see. Verse 29, Peter said to him, even if everyone else deserts you, I never will. And then everyone rolls their eyes. That's how I see that. Then Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night the rooster crows twice. You will deny me three times that you even know you. So if Jesus were to come and look us in the eyeball face to face and he were to say, hey, you're going to go through a season of failure, I don't think we should do what Peter did here. Peter argued with Jesus. Peter's like, no, you're wrong, Jesus. But if Jesus were to come and say, hey, you're going to experience a season of failure, let's not argue. But Peter, he argues because it reveals that there's something wrong in his spirit, that he, there's something immature about who Peter is. He's not ready to be the leader of the church. He's not ready to preach a sermon and 3,000 people get saved. He, he's not ready to lead the church into triumph as Christ ascends into heaven because there's something immature. There's something broken in Peter that only a season of failure is going to help him understand. So verse 31, no, Peter declared emphatically, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the others vowed the same. And so we see that Peter lacks a critical life skill, and that is teachability. So three truths about failure. Three truths about failure. Number one, failure is inevitable, and it is inevitably surprising. Peter is actually shocked. He's actually shocked that he needs to make this change in his life to avoid failure. And many times we can find ourselves in a similar position. We're the one that doesn't know our own fatal flaw. Our spouse knows the flaw, our kids know the flaw, our coworkers know the flaw, but we ourselves many times don't recognize the flaw. And the reason we don't know it is that something has happened in our hearts. We've positioned our hearts so that when it's pointed out to us, we can't receive it. That's why the writer of Hebrews put in chapter 3, verse 15, remember what it says, today when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Last week, Pastor Tim talked about the five ways that we can hear God speaking to us. And if you missed this last week, please listen to the podcast, go back and watch it because it is an incredible teaching. And, and Peter has Jesus standing in front of him. Jesus looking at him eyeball to eyeball. And he, Jesus is saying, hey, Peter, here's a, here's a flaw in you that you've got to do something about. And Peter doesn't receive it. He, he can't receive it. So he's shocked by this failure. Peter's heart was hardened by pride, so he couldn't receive, and his response to the gentle correction was to argue, was to shut down, was to debate, was to push it away, and because of this, Peter's actions and his condition of his heart contributed to his own failure. So Jesus goes on, he's arrested, he's drugged to the courtyard of the high priest, and he's tried there in a super unjust trial, 
he's being questioned. And all the disciples scatter, just like Jesus predicted. And eventually, Peter kind of makes his way to the courtyard of the high priest, kind of sneaks in, and is sort of sitting by the outskirts of the gathering, just observing from afar what's happening to Jesus. And that's where we pick it up, still in Mark 14, verse 66 this time. Meanwhile, Peter was in the courtyard below. One of the servant girls who worked for the high priest came by and noticed Peter warming himself at the fire. She looked at him closely and said, you are one of those with Jesus of Nazareth. But Peter denied it. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went out to the entryway. Just then, a rooster crowed. When, a servant girl, when the servant girl saw him standing there, she began telling others, this man, this man is one of them. But Peter denied it again. A little later, other bystanders confronted Peter and said, you, you must be one of them because you are a Galilean. Peter swore, a curse on me if I am lying. I don't even know the man that you're talking about. And immediately, the rooster crowed the second time. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny three times that you even know me. And then he broke down and wept. And that brings us to the second truth about failure. Failure presents a unique opportunity for growth. When we're confronted with failure, we have a unique opportunity to grow. And so in the spirit of growth and, and learning from our mistakes, I compiled a list of all of the failures of my coworkers, which I will now read to you. Just kidding, <laughs> it's blank. Um, especially Pastor Tim. Uh, <laughs> We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to admit when we're struggling. We don't like to acknowledge our failure. But the truth is, when we fail, we come into a specific season where our heart is softened. And many times it's softened by the embarrassment of the failure, or it's at least rattled by the failure, so that our heart is softened and opened in a way where we can hear from God and we can receive correction that maybe in the past we've rejected. So Jesus knows Peter is about to go into the season of failure, but he doesn't give him a way out. He doesn't sidestep him around the difficult journey. He sends him right through this situation. And so Peter becomes more of the person that God is trying to shape Peter to be by going through the trial of the failure. But not only did Jesus predict that Peter would fall, but he also predicted that Peter would come back. He also predicted his comeback all in one verse. And there's the same story in a different gospel, this time the gospel of Luke. This detail is added. Jesus is speaking, Luke 22, verse 32. Jesus said, I have pleaded in prayer for you, talking to Peter, that your faith should not completely fail, so that when you have repented and returned to me, strengthen and build up the faith of your brothers. So Jesus knew that Peter was going to fail. He didn't save him. He didn't protect him but he let him go through this growth opportunity so that Peter would become stronger and find his own way through it. Because Peter had the skills. He had the raw personality to rally the other disciples after Jesus ascended into heaven. He had the leadership capacity to be the one, to be the first leader of the early church. He had it all in him, but he also had the immaturity. He also had the character flaw that would, would stop him from really executing everything that God had for him. And he had to become broken 
so that he could be broken for the hurts of others. He had to recognize that he didn't possess within himself all the strength that he needed so that he could allow the Holy Spirit to flow through him and allow the Holy Spirit to be the strength to the people around him. And so my failure and your failure and our mistakes and our shortcomings and our sins all represent this opportunity for growth. And, and we have to change and we have to grow and mature and become the people that God is calling us to be in the midst of failure. So James chapter 1 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. So the third truth about failure is failing never makes us a failure. Failing never makes us a failure because it doesn't define us. Failing might be something we did in a moment, but it's not who we are, and it's not who God sees us to be, and that failure is never the end of what's happening. It might be the end of a job or the end of a relationship or the end of a dream, but it's never the end of what God is up to. God's always working it together for the good of those who love and trust him and are called according to his purposes. So it's not the end of what God's doing. It's not the end of what God is preparing. Proverbs 24, 16 says, The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. So we have the godly and the wicked in this verse. The godly trip and fall, and the wicked trip and fall. The tripping and the falling is not what sets us apart. What sets us apart as godly is that we get up again. Even if we trip seven times, we get up again. But the wicked trip once, and they never recover. And the difference between the wicked and the godly is that the godly have God lifting them up, empowering them, giving them that pep talk, saying, keep on going, keep on fighting, keep on standing, where the wicked, one disaster hits them, they're all alone. They have no Holy Spirit guiding them and pulling them towards recovery. Failing is never the final destination, and it does not define who we are in God's sight. Back to Luke 22, verse 60, it says, But Peter said, Man, I don't even know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. At that moment, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Suddenly, the Lord's words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows tomorrow, you will deny three times that you even know me. And Peter left the courtyard, weeping bitterly. So at that moment, and we know what was happening for Peter at that moment, right? He was being accused of knowing Christ. He was denying Jesus. So he was in a dark night of the soul. He was in the lowest point of his life probably up until that moment, lonely and isolated. But at that moment, what was happening for Jesus? And the Bible tells us that at that moment, what was happening for Jesus is he was in the courtyard of the high priest. He was surrounded by people that despised him. He, he was in a mock trial of sorts, and they were spitting on him and plucking his beard and slapping him. They were making up false accusations against him, lying about him. And they were, intent, they were attempting to accuse him to the point of being able to execute him through crucifixion, the most horrific manner of execution in the modern world. That's what Jesus was doing. And when Jesus thought about that moment the day before, he sweat drops of blood. That's how intense his thoughts were about that moment. 
because Jesus knew that the weight of the world's sins were about to rest on his shoulder. And so at that moment, that's what Jesus was doing. And at that moment, Peter was having his lowest moment, but the Bible says that at that moment, Jesus looked over at Peter. He looked at Peter. I wonder what was in that look. As a younger person, I would have said, he's probably looking at him to be like, I told you. I told you you were going to fail, and look at you now. Now you've done it. And I think I thought that because that was the religious way that I was raised. The anger was always there when, when we talked about God, and God was always angry at our mistakes. And so that's how I was raised to kind of think that God, if every time I messed up, that God was just right there to point it out to me. I remember singing this song in Sunday school, or maybe you sang it in VBS, but it's, oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see. Because the Father up above is looking down. The next word is in love, but I didn't hear that. I didn't hear any of that. All I heard was the Father is looking down. And so my mind rewrote the song to be something like, be careful, little eyes, what you see, because I know God's always looking down on me, waiting just to judge and always hold a grudge. Careful, little eyes. So this moment, right, Jesus is being arrested. He's in the, in the courtyard of the high priest, and he gives a look to Peter. Is it the look that I feared as a kid? No, it's not. It's not a look of, I told you so. It's not a look of condemnation because Romans 8.1 says, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So when, when Jesus looked at Peter, it was a look of, I am with you. This is not your story. This is not the end. I told you this would happen, but I also told you you'd recover. It was a look of, you're not alone in this moment. And when Jesus looks at us in our weakest moments, in our darkest moments, it's not to judge us, it's not to point a finger at us, it's not to condemn us, it's to connect with us. It's to extend love and grace to us. It's a look of, I am with you and you are not alone. And even in this moment, the worst moment probably of Peter's life up until that point, there's Jesus looking at him lovingly. And we can take comfort from the fact that even in our darkest moments and our deepest failure, that Jesus is looking our way. He's gazing at us lovingly, and he's saying, I am with you. And maybe you feel like you failed in your life. You've looked at your situation, and you feel that you've made some mistakes, and you aren't sure where you stand with God. You're not sure maybe how God looks at you. And if you have a relationship with God through the person of Jesus, then the truth is the way God looks at you is that of a son, that of a daughter. And even if you've made a mistake, he welcomes you and tries to draw you home. In Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, it says, Come, let us settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them as white as wool. So God is looking at us. He sees the mistakes, not to point a finger, not to judge, but to reach out to us and to draw us into communication. He says, come on, let's settle this. Let's talk about it. Let's fix this. Let's have a conversation. He's trying to draw us back into relationship. But so many times when we know we've messed up, we look at our hands and we say they're red. I'm guilty. I've done it. It's my fault. 
And then we say, I can't come near to him because of my mistakes. But God's constant plan is to pull us into connection. When I was a kid, my mom would do this thing, and I thought it was the worst. It was so annoying. But if my brothers and I, like, wronged each other in some way, she would get hold of us both and bring us and force us to, like, look each other in the eyes. And the person that had offended would have to say, I'm sorry, I did blank, hit you, whatever. I'm sorry I hit you. I was wrong. Please forgive me. And then my mom would make sure that the offended person would look them back in the eye and say, I forgive you. And I thought this was the dumbest thing ever until I became a parent. And then I make my kids do this too. <laughs> because it teaches us how to apologize. And guess what? The same method of giving an apology as a five-year-old to your seven-year-old brother is the exact same way we bring an apology to the Lord. When we realize we've messed up, no matter how complicated our sin seems, no matter how red the stain of sin we think we have on our hands, it's just as simple as when we were five. It's just as simple as going to God in prayer and saying, God, I am sorry. I was wrong when I hit my brother, whatever it was, right? I was wrong. Please forgive me. And when we do that, God, the Bible is so clear, it says that God's response to this, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin to him, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In other words, God says, I forgive you. And so if you are a Christian, you have Christ in your heart, then you're in this relationship with God. But maybe you're here and you know that you didn't do that at some point. You never asked Jesus to be the Lord and leader of your life. Then here's what you need to know. The Bible lays it out so clearly, beginning in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. It says, for everyone has sinned, and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. This lets us know that we've all made mistakes. Every single person in humanity has messed up, especially when compared to God's perfection. And that's easy to see, but what do we do to make it right? Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And the word in the original language for death here doesn't mean that we grow old and die. It means eternal death. It means permanent and eternal separation from all that is good and from all that is God. And so the wages of sin is death, but, the good news, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And there's a way that every person on this planet can say to tap into this gift. Notice that the verse says that it's Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not just that we know of him or that we know his name, it's that we've called him Lord. Romans 10.9 says, if you openly declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, meaning you've given him lordship, You've called him Lord. He's your master. He's the leader of your life. If you openly declare that Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, that he died on the cross to pay the price for our sins that we couldn't pay, then you will be saved. But some people think, well, not me. I've done way too much. My hands are way too dirty. But the Bible says in Acts 4 that anyone, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. And so I don't know what your story is this morning, but if you're here and you're not sure, you're not 100% sure that at some point in your life you've asked Jesus' death on the cross to cover the debt of your sin, then right now, this is your moment. 
And for the privacy of everyone, would, would each person close their eyes and lower their head? And if you're in the room and you say, you know what, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I've asked Jesus to be the Lord, master, leader of my life. I'm still in charge of my own life. And I need to give leadership over to God. I need to ask him to forgive me of all of my sins. Would you just slip up a hand so that we can pray together? I need to ask Jesus to forgive me of my sin. Yes, so many hands. And it really begins with us openly declaring. So let's pray together for the benefit of those raising your hands, everyone in the room. Dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins, my mistakes and my failures. I was wrong. Please forgive me. I give you lordship and leadership of my life. I want to follow you from this day forward, and I want to get to know you better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if you prayed that prayer for the very first time, I challenge you to tell someone that you came to church with. This is a life-changing, a brand new day for you. The Bible says that when we pray that prayer, that we become a new creation. So it's really important to share with those around you. Church family, we're so glad you're here this morning. Thank you so much. We'll see you next Sunday morning. Thanks for listening to this week's message at Fellowship Church. If this was your first time experiencing Fellowship Church, or if you want to learn more about one of our many ministries, you can text the word fellowship to 94000 and connect with our staff today. Now, if you're in need of prayer, we'd love to support you. You can submit your prayer requests by texting prayer support to 94000. Our prayer team will receive your request and immediately start covering you. And as always, we're still just a phone call away. You can contact us at 970-245-PRAY with any questions. Thanks again. We hope to see you next week in person or online.